it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Friday, January 13th. Friday the 13th. 2023, I'm Guy Benson. Welcome in to the Guy Benson Show. Every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time, and around the clock for free on demand on our podcast, GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast available seven days a week, including bonus Benson on the weekends. No charge to you. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media at GuyBensonShow, Twitter and Instagram. You can follow me personally, same platforms, at Guy P. Benson. I'm TownHall.com's political editor. I'm a Fox News contributor. I'll be on Fox News Sunday, this Sunday morning. Check your local listings on your local Fox station. The show will repeat later in the day on Fox News Channel. Of course, it's hosted by Shannon Bream, who is our first guest coming up later this hour here on the radio side. We will also check in with Andy McCarthy. Looking forward to that chat, as usual. We'll get his legal acumen when it comes to this burgeoning and growing problem that the White House has on classified information. And then later in the show, Pete Ricketts, who is a two-term governor of Nebraska, he has just been appointed by his successor in Nebraska as the next U.S. senator from that state, replacing Ben Sass, who's now going to lead the University of Florida. So Pete Ricketts is here talking about his old job, now his new job as well, looking forward to all of that. As we get going here, let's talk more about this classified material scandal that is now engulfing the Biden White House in a very difficult start to the new year for this president. And I've said a few different times that if you look at the past few administrations under President Obama, unbeknownst to us, you had his former vice president apparently taking highly classified materials home to various places in ways that were not allowed. You also had his secretary of state, Hillary Clinton, engaged in one of the most outrageous systemic projects of mishandling uh, classified information that I can think of with her private email server, which I have said is worse than anything Biden or Trump have done on this front. And they both have behaved recklessly and unethically at the very least, if not illegally. And I've made the case why I think Hillary was worst by quite a distance, I would say. Part of it being her clear intent all along of setting up, it took real effort to set up that server. To bypass the system, to bypass the rules. If you've got classified materials locked in a garage or a closet, whether it's in Delaware or D.C. or Mar-a-Lago, that's not good. That's not allowed. It's also not penetrable using the Internet by hackers from foreign regimes, which was the case with Hillary's server. Bob Gates, who was defense secretary under Obama and Bush, he said it's almost a certainty that our enemies got a hold of everything in her emails because of the way that she 
bootleg that system. So that is not just potentially compromising a little bit of classified material. It is giving away that material, some of which was at the very highest levels of classification, if you recall, to our enemies. And then, of course, she lied about it incessantly at every turn. And when they realized there was a problem, she and her team deleted evidence, destroyed evidence. The reason that I keep bringing up Hillary Clinton in this context is because I think it's the most important context as we think about what's going to happen next. We have now special prosecutors appointed to both of these cases involving the past president and the current president. If that was all we had, I still think it would be a lot harder to charge Donald Trump, if that's what they wanted to do, in light of what's happened with Biden. But the most important data point, the most important precedent is the Hillary precedent and what they chose not to do. She was politically punished, obviously, for what she did. And I know that a lot of people have really been invested in this argument that she really did almost nothing wrong. But her emails, oh, we defeated this wonderful woman and put in Trump because of this made-up controversy. No. She is, I think, extremely fortunate that she was not prosecuted. Anyone else who did what she did would have been prosecuted. But because they chose not to, I would say for political reasons, they can't charge Trump. And they won't charge Biden, even as the situation gets worse for Biden, I would say. So it comes back to Hillary. And yes, the emails once again. But one thing I had not considered, everyone, and I have to tip my hat here. I have to applaud CNN. Because I had not considered that there was a possible angle to blame Biden's problems, Biden's misconduct, Biden's potential criminality on this front and negligence on Donald Trump. I know there's a way to blame Trump for almost everything in most of these people's minds. I think Trump sometimes deserves blame, sometimes not. It had not even occurred to me that there could be a this is Trump's fault angle to what Biden apparently had done, especially because Biden evidently at least began the mishandling and misconduct before Trump was even president. But, again, sometimes you just have to start a slow clap. you got to respect ingenuity in quote-unquote journalism. Here's what CNN wrote in a piece today, and I just almost want to print this out and frame it. When people still uh, preposterously try to pretend that the media is just on the side of truth. They're not rooting for a side, I think is what Chris Saliza once said, formerly of CNN. He was just recently, I think, let go there. But here is the CNN piece. You sort of wonder, oh, why don't people trust the press? Quote, the closing days of Biden's vice presidency were a flurry of packing mementos, photographs, personal papers. People familiar with the matter say, oh, thank goodness. We've got some people familiar With the matter, the matter being Joe Biden's, what, fleeting days as vice president. We need some real inside anonymous scoops on the uh, flurry of packing mementos and photographs and personal effects. Great. Thanks for that. Great scoop. Great scoop. Though most of Biden's files and documents were turned over to the National Archives in a process that began several weeks before he left office, last-minute work continued up until the hours he departed the White House 
for Donald Trump's inauguration. The looming arrival of Trump to the White House left many of Obama and Biden's aides wary of the future and eager to cement many of their accomplishments. It was an uneasy moment, according to many of those who lived through it. Oh. Maybe they were struggling. This is the implication here. Understand this. Maybe they were struggling so much emotionally that Trump was coming in that they couldn't really hand over the documents properly. They were so traumatized by awful Trump and his win and his looming presidency that maybe corners were cut. Maybe they just weren't all there. This is kind of like pleading insanity. Didn't see this one coming, I have to say, on the list of possible excuses. They were preemptively so upset about Trump that they couldn't follow the rules. Maybe if Trump weren't so awful, they would have followed the rules. That is the implication. It's amazing. Oh, my gosh. Over on MSNBC, CNN's competitor for left-wing cable news, Mika Brzezinski on Morning Joe, the co-host and wife of the aforementioned Morning Joe, uh, she had this to say about how really it's just the dum-dums who can't understand what's going on here. That's the problem. Cut 15. Classified documents in private hands is something Republicans downplayed constantly until the shoe was placed on the other foot. And unfortunately for them, the Trump shoe that dropped was much bigger and entirely different in the key issue of willful intent to obstruct. That's what it's going to come down to. Many Republicans just aren't smart enough to figure that out, and they can't figure out that this week's developments actually make it more likely the DOJ moves on Trump because of the political space it has been given by the Penn Biden Center and the garage where Joe Biden parks his Corvette. Amazing. We're just too stupid to understand the differences. I made the point there are differences. There are meaningful differences in some ways. What we know about Trump is worse than what we know about Biden, and we know more now, so it's getting worse, as I've said, for Biden. But she's like, never mind all that. They're too stupid to understand that these are really totally different. And if anything, Biden getting caught with classified materials in a way that he's not allowed to have this stuff, it actually creates an opening. It makes it more likely for the DOJ to charge Trump. That makes no sense. I think the opposite is almost certainly the case. If it were only Trump clearing out any of the Biden stuff and clearing out any of the Hillary stuff, maybe. And it's still a questionable decision. Do you charge a former president, an existing current presidential candidate, over something like this? But with the context of Hillary plus Biden, I think it gets a lot harder unless you go on a charging spree, even though they've already decided long ago not to charge Hillary Clinton. She's trying to say that Biden's mishandling, potential criminal mishandling of classified information is so different from Trump's that it makes it more likely to charge Trump. That is, I think, very poor analysis. I won't call her stupid the way that she's called other people stupid, but I very much question her conclusion. Let's put it that way. Sounds more like wish casting to me. 
And notice, missing from her little story there, oh, Republicans, long dismissed classified material being mishandled until the shoe is on the other foot. It's like she's erasing the entire Hillary Clinton saga from her memory. Right? She, I guarantee you, was a Hillary Clinton voter in 2016. She didn't give a damn that Hillary had basically given away major national secrets to our enemies through this insane server that she set up on the sly with no knowledge to dodge accountability, lied about it every turn, and then destroyed evidence once she was caught. She didn't care. Mika and company didn't care about any of that. Republicans did. Then you can say Republicans were hypocrites for caring less when Trump was doing something bad on this front, but you can't pretend like this was started by the Republicans and now the shoe's on the other foot and suddenly they care. Mika didn't care at all about what Hillary did. Maybe some tisk-tisking, but not like, hey, this is criminal. Charge her. Can't, you know, unfit for office. We can't vote for her. Once The Morning Joe crew helped get Trump nominated because they had Trump on constantly. Trump was like their favorite guest. He was buds with Joe and Mika. Then they helped get him nominated, part of that free avalanche of publicity that Trump got compared to all the other Republicans. Then they turned and, of course, decided now we'll do everything we can to beat him in the general. Didn't work out for them, obviously. Be careful what you wish for in terms of who gets nominated on the other side of the ticket. But that's what happened. And the analysis, the terrible analysis that you just heard there from Mika, probably even worse than the CNN spin, which is, I would say, remarkable and unique unto itself. But Mika's terrible analysis relies on absolutely airbrushing Hillary out of existence and that entire highly relevant episode well if we haven't heard from enough leading lights just yet yesterday joe concha mentioned to us that some of the ladies on the view the exactly the ones you would expect by the way started wondering if maybe because trump had a problem on this the republicans might have planted this stuff in joe biden's office in his garage Even the Democrats, for the most part, the White House, aren't this conspiratorial and making up something so laughable. Because also, it's self-defeating. They've been saying, well, it was locked. It's not the standard. It's not the law. It was locked. Except the Republicans, I guess, could pick the lock to deposit some top-secret stuff in a box in a garage next to a car or whatever happened. That's what they were talking about over on the daily, nationally televised insane asylum. That is The View. And they weren't alone, as I mentioned yesterday, Hank Johnson of the Judiciary Committee, Democrat, he was thinking along the same lines, cut 18. I'm suspicious of the timing of it. I'm I'm also aware of the fact that things can be planted on people. Places and things can be planted. um, Things things can be planted in places... uh, and then discovered conveniently, yes. that may be what has occurred here. I'm not ruling that out, uh-huh. but I don't, I'm, I'm open in terms of the investigation. needs to be investigated. Oh, I'm sure he is. He's not ruling it out. That is some sinister stuff there, Congressman. Of course, he doesn't rule a lot of things out. Now, he's suspicious of a lot of possibilities. For example, this flashback that will live forever, 
the immortal exchange from 2011, the very same Hank Johnson in a congressional hearing with a military official, cut 19. The whole island will uh, become so overly populated that it will tip over and, uh, and capsize. Uh, we don't anticipate that. Hank Johnson was worried a dozen years ago that if we put too many U.S. military personnel on one end of the island in Guam, the island might tip over. Military official, thank goodness, underscored that they did not anticipate that. But I'd imagine Hank Johnson can't rule it out. He can't rule out a lot of things. Wow. Round of applause for everyone involved here. You're doing great, guys. Responding so well. We're not done. More to get to. Another congresswoman trying to backtrack and figure out her own double standards. That audio coming up. It's the Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie. Formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services. Marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you. It's the nation's largest home services marketplace, connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project, big or small. As a homeowner myself, I always have things I want to work on for my house, whether it's general home renovations or fun projects like putting in a pool. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it a breeze to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. And get this, folks. Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus, they've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So you know you're getting quality service. So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. I'm Guy Benson. Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, the progressive con- uh, caucus, she's out there in Washington state. She was on CNN. Allison Camerata asked her actually a decent question, which was, hey, you had a lot to say about Trump and Mar-a-Lago and documents. What about all this? And Jayapal, let's just say, struggled. Cut 16. You tweeted, Donald Trump stole classified documents. He put not only our national security at risk, but the security and safety of our allies around the world. He must be held accountable to the full extent of the law. Isn't it possible that President Biden is putting our national security at risk also? These documents so far that we know, what we know, is that they were kept in a locked place that was a very small number. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know how important these are. The storage and the approach to this is completely different. No. Trump had a locked door at Mar-a-Lago. She called that stolen, prosecute, fullest extent of the law. Biden, well, we don't, do we know it was locked? It was locked. It wasn't as many. It was different. There's whack-a-mole, and then there's this frenzied game of whack-a-hack. Everywhere. Hacks everywhere. 
I know it's, I guess, difficult, evidently, for some people to be intellectually honest and just have any consistency. It's just, like, shameless. Man, it is really bad out there on that front. Shannon Bream coming up next. We'll ask her about this. Annie McCarthy later as well. Guy Benson Show continues next. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Chugging forward here on this Friday on the Guy Benson Show. Thanks for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com. Free podcast is there every day, including bonus Benson on the weekends. No charge. That's GuyBensonShow.com. Shannon Bream joins us now, chief legal correspondent and anchor of Fox News Sunday. Check your local listings. I'll be on the panel this weekend. Also, hit the or host, I should say, of the hit podcast, Live in the Bream. She's a best-selling author as well. Shannon, it is so good to have you back. Hello. My friend, it's great to be with you, and I'm so excited you'll be with us Sunday. I'm excited to be on the panel. In fact, you know what? I am just now remembering. Hang on. Let me pull up my little Twitter app here, and I want to find – here it is – a photograph – at Reagan Airport yesterday, I ran oh. across this as I had uh, arrived home from a trip. This is maybe yeah yesterday morning. It was a smiling face of one familiar character advertising Fox News Sunday at the airport. I'm like, wait a second, I know her. Took a couple photos. I need to tweet this. Uh, that's kind of cool, seeing a, like it a is, billboard so, of yourself. Right. It's funny, and I and I usually fly in and out of Reagan probably once a week or every two weeks, and so I haven't seen it yet. But I've had so many people send it to me, and they're like, are you taking over the airport? What's happening? I'm like, yep, we bought out Southwest and rebranded. So I'm like, my face is at every gate, and I'm now <laughs> operating the airline, apparently. Well, for many years in airports, there was only one channel available to be watched, and uh, it wasn't ours. So that would be a massive upgrade if it's just the Shannon Bream Network in airports as like a a captive audience. I would 100% sign up for that. Shannon, there's a lot to get to here. Obviously, the news has just been wild. The first two weeks of the new year, we're not getting eased into the news cycle. That's not happening. We had the speaker battle last week, and now all this stuff. With President Biden, the classified materials, the blizzard of, I would say, hackery and double standards and people trying to make excuses, we now have a second special counsel. We have a special counsel looking into this on Trump. Now we have a special counsel looking into this same type of thing with Biden. It's almost hard to keep track of the various investigations. There's still the John Durham thing floating out there. There's the Hunter Biden probe out there. There's other investigations into Donald Trump. It's just like a very tangled web that even when it's like our job to remember what's happening, it kind of gets challenging at times. 
Right. I need like the beautiful mind situation where you've got the <laughs> strings going here and the thumbtacks there and the stuff all on the wall just to keep track. Like you said, of all these, there are state investigations, there are federal investigations. There's a lot to keep track of. And listen, we're already in formally into 2024. Um, former President Trump has announced he's officially in. The buzz had been here in Washington that President Trump was getting ready to announce in the next few weeks that he's in. So we're, we're fully into that. And you know, the DOJ has always had this practice of trying not to influence elections by anything they do. So the clock is now ticking on both of these. Um, does one finish first and the other finish second? Does one person get charged and the other get charged? I mean, there's so much uh, now on the weight of the Attorney General Merrick Garland, on the DOJ, as people are going to be watching about how these cases, which have similarities and, listen, to be fair, significant differences, sure. but how they're handled is going to be very closely watched because these two men um, are likely both to be in officially soon and running for the presidency in the midst of these investigations. That's right. And look, I keep beating this drum to anyone who will listen. I think the Trump versus Biden side by side is somewhat interesting and relevant in terms of figuring out what might come or not come of this. I think the more relevant one is Hillary Clinton and the decision not to prosecute when mm-hmm. she was I just dead to rights for something that I've argued was much worse. So I just don't see how you can decide to let her off the hook, at least in that way, and then filed charges against Trump or Biden, frankly, given what happened or didn't happen to Hillary. But also, like at some point, maybe these people at the very top of our political system aren't the best examples to make, except, you know, what's the point of having rules if it becomes effectively clear that you can break them if you're just high enough up in the government? I mean, that's sort of Part of what worries me here, I'm not saying that there should be charges as a result now uh, against one of these two men, Um, you know, even though it didn't happen with Hillary. It just overall, I just don't think it's a healthy thing. The law and the rules need to matter. They need to apply to everyone. And if they don't, what's the point of having them? And they've already sort of indicated they don't really apply to Hillary. And so why should they apply to Trump? I mean, I, I don't like framing it that way, but I think there's something there. Well, you think about, you know, folks are reminding us of other similar cases that have gone on. A civilian Pentagon employee last year who took classified documents to her hotel room got sentenced to jail over that. Um, We know the story of the guy on the submarine who took pictures to share with his family and got in trouble. I mean, they're – if real people, quote unquote, real people who aren't running for president or at the level of living in the White House are having real jail time over well, these the um, potential documents, you know, people can argue about whether that's an over prosecution or not. But if we know that people at an, a, a higher level, um, a, a more elite, a more protected level are not getting in trouble for the same things, no American wants to see that, regardless of their party. It's not no, a partisan issue. You want to know that you would not get thrown in jail for something that the White House would get a pass on. Well, it's like if you a little person, right? If you're a little person who's not that important and doesn't have, you know, a whole bunch of uh, political strings attached with partisan implications, if you get in trouble, they're going to throw the book at you in order to really underscore and highlight the point how seriously we have to take these things. Unless, asterisk, you're part of this, what, protected class of high-level politicians, uh, especially on one side of the aisle. I just think that sends an absolutely awful Message. By the way, I just have to tell you, Shannon, interjecting, I did tweet literally while we're sitting here. I did tweet that photo from DCA (laughs) of you at the airport, and I immediately got a response from one of our other colleagues who got a photo of you and the billboard in Times Square. So, oh, I mean, look, yes. it's, I just, it's, it's bream time everywhere. It's very Listen, exciting. Only my mom is not going to be sick of it at some point. 
Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm going to raise my history. hand. I'm not sick of it. I could get a lot more bream here before I get tired of it. Shannon, well, I made this point last night. I was on special report on the panel with Brett, and we played earlier in the show the clip of our colleague Peter Ducey asking the question, the way he asked it of Biden yesterday, he had seen, and I was talking a little bit, texting with Peter last night uh, after all of this, he spent a lot of time in Delaware with Biden covering Joe Biden during his run for the presidency, which was largely done from Delaware in the basement, so to speak. So a lot of downtime. Ducey was familiar with that property. He remembered that's where the Corvette was. So he asked the question the way that he did. And on a day that the White House clearly didn't want to make any additional news or say much of anything at all, he was able to induce the president into making, I think, Uh, I would call it an unforced error, but it was sort of a little bit forced by Peter based on the question, cut one, here's what it sounded like. Classified material, next to your Corvette, what were you thinking? Let me, uh, I'm going to get a chance to speak on all this, God willing, soon, but as I said earlier this week, people, and by the way, my Corvette's in a locked garage, okay, so it's not like you're sitting out in the street, but anyway, yes, as well as my Corvette. Um, but as I said earlier this week, people know I take classified documents and classified material seriously. Well, maybe not um, because of what we're learning here, Shannon. But he had a prepared little statement there from the team to read. But because Peter brought up the Corvette, it just like clicked something in Biden's mind where he had to respond and I don't think he helped himself at all by saying, oh, well, the garage locks. It's not like it was out on the street, which is nowhere near the legal standard here. I can imagine being one of Biden's lawyers watching that and saying, no, 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 that is not. Read the thing. I think that was an interesting moment. Yeah. And, you know, uh, Peter, who is so excellent at his job and we um, celebrate him every day, you know, he didn't get called on today. And, and of course, Corrine Jean-Pierre, the press secretary, has pressed over and over again today. And Peter said, you know, the, the president is heading home to Wilmington today, where we're told that two of these discoveries happened of these two different classified documents. And so Peter very cheekily had a question planned that he was going to ask, why would the president be returning to a potential crime scene? Um, so it's probably to KJP's benefit that she did not call on him today. Um, But he does have a way with the president. I think they have an interesting relationship, and he's able to get to him to get those answers and things that are off the talking points that his, um, you know, team probably doesn't want to hear him talking about. Um, Our our colleague, Annie McCarthy, over here at Fox, who is a former federal prosecutor, said, based on what the president has admitted to so far, you don't even need to investigate. Like, you've got all the elements of the crime for prosecution. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to happen, but he said he has admitted these were classified documents. He's admitted they were in a completely unsecured space. And that's basically what the law is about, those two things. We have Andy McCarthy coming up in the next hour, and we're going to pick his brain further on exactly that point and what the legal standard is and politically what this might look like moving forward. Meanwhile, Shannon, before this whole story broke, like a, I, you know, I did not have as they like to say on the uh, early 2023 bingo card, a giant multifaceted <laughs> classified document scandal involving the current president beyond what we already saw from the previous president. But here we are. Before that exploded into the headlines, the big story was the border crisis and the president's trip to Mexico City and then also to the U.S.-Mexico border right before that. Was it a real visit? Did he learn anything? He saw no migrants. That was sort of uh, the battle that was happening 
I know that you have uh, a congressman, we'll talk about this later on, a border congressman on your show this coming weekend. But what I think is sort of interesting, I don't know if you saw this headline from Bloomberg. This is what they reported about that Mexico City visit and the summit that the president was, uh, was at. Quote, U.S. and Mexican cabinet officials ran out of time before discussing migration in a formal meeting in Mexico City on Monday, according to people familiar with the matter, leaving a major issue between the countries largely unaddressed. I have to say that on some level is just shocking to me. I know that this president doesn't really seem to care very much about the border crisis, but just the sheer numbers in terms of millions of annual crossings, six to 7,000 a day, people dying Border Patrol agents committing suicide. I mean, it, it, the terrorist watch list, you just go on and on about all the components of this, humanitarian, national sovereignty, public safety. It is a giant, huge crisis at that border between these two countries. And the high-level officials on either side of this ran out of time before they could even address it in a serious way. It, it wasn't at the top of the agenda. To me, that is really uh, outrageous. Yeah, and I think most people thought that was going to be a primary topic of these meetings. I mean, it's, it's very it much be? an issue for these three countries. It's interesting because President Biden has said, oh, we spent a lot of time talking about migration. Then you've got the president of Mexico saying, uh, it was kind of hit in a very broad manner. And then this Bloomberg report that they ran out of time. Um, I think most people seeing the president go to that meeting expected that's what it was going to be about. We've been told that it's not just one thing or another. There are all these root causes and those have to be handled. Well, that's those are the countries that you go and talk to about it. So it seems confusing. But again, when the president was he's getting praise from Democrats who had publicly called him out saying, you need to get down here. This is a big issue. It's not a partisan issue. They're giving him credit for at least going. But of course, the fact that El Paso was sanitized and that he didn't really get to see the worst of what's going on down there. Others are just going to call it a photo op. And, you know, if there aren't big policy changes, they blame Republicans in Congress. They say they won't come to the table and, and negotiate with them. And they put something out in a piece of form of legislation, draft legislation. Republicans will say it's nonsensical. It's not a real deal. And he's expended no political capital in the last two years to talk to us about this. So, you know, the two sides don't seem to have much in common other than they, they agree there's a massive problem. Let's talk about Sunday's show. Obviously, your major all-star featured guest is yours truly on the panel, but there are some other folks as well uh, who will be on the program Sunday morning. Uh, Let's talk about the standalone guests first, a couple of lawmakers. Who's on? Okay, in a distant second to you on the panel and on the show on Sunday, we've got members of Congress from either side, Democrat John Garamendi and Congressman of Republican Tony Gonzalez. The Repo- Listen, the Republicans have pledged to investigate everything over in the House, and now with these Biden documents, that's adding fuel to that fire. But we also got word today from the Treasury Secretary that the debt limit, we're going to hit it in a few days. So can these two sides work together on anything? Uh, we've also got the Youngest governor in the country just sworn in, newly Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Um, she came out um, with guns blazing, I think we could say, on these executive orders and things that she's working on. And I'm going to talk to her about those and um, also whether she plans to publicly or privately support her former boss in his run for the presidency. I see here on the uh, tentative rundown something about a civil discourse panel. What's that? 
Mm-hmm. You know what? I love these two professors who don't agree on much of anything, but they are really good friends. Robbie George out of Princeton and Cornell West out of Harvard. Um, on policy issues, they're very diametrically opposed. Um, they're different ends of the political spectrum, but they love each other, and they have such a beautiful relationship and say, you should be able to talk about the worst, toughest, most difficult topics, still walk away as friends and love each other. And I think we're missing that. And and just to see them and, and to be a witness to this conversation, I think people will, I hope, be really inspired by it to do the same in our own lives. So that's the civil discourse panel. Then we'll move to the uncivil discourse panel featuring myself, Juan Williams, <laughs> Horace Cooper, Olivia Beavers. I mean, just a bonanza of news this week. So much mm-hmm. to talk about. I'm looking forward to it. Check your local listings, your local Fox stations on Sunday morning. The show repeats on Fox News Channel later in the day, I believe a couple of times. Shannon Bream, the anchor. She's on billboards everywhere, airports, Times Square. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you just look around. Shannon's everywhere. And she also has the podcast, Live in the Bream. Buy and read her books. So much going on. Shannon, can't wait to see you in person on Sunday. Looking forward to it. See you then, Guy. That's Shannon Bream on The Guy Benson Show, back right after this very short break. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. We're back. It's the Guy Benson Show, revisiting a topic from yesterday, this uh, gas stove ban issue. I guess the memo went out that this is all a culture war, that the Republicans or the conservatives started by just, as I said, noticing what people are proposing and endorsing on the left. It started because a Democratic bureaucrat floated the idea and a bunch of Democrats rushed onto social media and said, great, let's do it. We're doing it. In New York, in California, in in fact, one of the uh, officials in New York City, Mark Levine, who is the Manhattan Borough President, he tweeted a few hours ago, in New York City, we passed landmark legislation in 2021 banning gas hookups in new construction. That means all heating, hot water, and yes, stoves must be electric in new buildings going forward. Now, that's more of a fire hazard, but I guess they're fine with that because it's just we we have babies running everything. Trade-offs don't matter. Tribalism matters. New York City, he writes, is going to win the race to carbon neutrality. We are leaving red states in the dust. Oh, good for, good. Good for you. Kathy Hochul's pursuing this. We've got people in California pursuing this. A federal bureaucrat talked about it, and yet a lot of folks in the media are like, oh, this is just a big fever dream of right-wingers. Why are they talking about this so much? This isn't happening. It's the old... This isn't happening, but it is needed and good if it is. I saw that Chris Hayes from MSNBC, he had tweeted that he thinks this is just a shtick from the opponents. It's it's sort of like putting on a show. People who are mad about the potential banning of gas stoves. It's a bit. They're performing. They're performing a bit. Look at these guys. They don't even believe it. It's just a shtick. And then in another tweet, he said, oh, yes, but the gas stoves are bad. They have to go. He's like, I love them, but they've got to go. So mark another person in favor of the ban that they say isn't going to happen, and it's weird for us to notice that they're even talking about it. The Washington Post in the last couple days has four stories all contradicting each other on whether this is a right-wing culture war or something that is actually happening and needs to happen. The gas stove, gas lighting continues. 
Another hour of the Guy Benson Show is on tap. Annie McCarthy is going to be here on the Biden Papers straight ahead. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. A new hour on this Friday on the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. GuyBensonShow.com, our website. Podcast free every day when the show is over. That's on demand, no charge. At Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. A lot more still to get to here on the show today. How about a Fox News alert as we enter our middle hour with Dow closing up 112 points today, up on the week. Final number 34,302 heading to the weekend. That's the Dow. Well, back with us is Andy McCarthy, Fox News contributor, former federal prosecutor. Andy, good to have you back. Guy, great to be with you. In the last hour, we had Shannon Bream here, and she actually cited something you had said about what the president admitted to Peter Ducey based on Peter's question yesterday. If people have missed it, I've played it multiple times in the last two days. But in case they need a refresher, let's listen to cut one. Classified material next to your Corvette. What were you thinking? Let me, uh, I'm going to get a chance to speak on all this, God willing, soon. But as I said earlier this week, people, and by the way, my Corvette's in a locked garage. Okay? So it's not like you're sitting out in the street. But anyway. It's in a locked garage. Yes, as well as my Corvette. Um, But as I said earlier this week, people know I take classified documents and classified material seriously. Well, having classified material in your garage uh, is not taking it seriously. By definition, it's not allowed. It's not legal. His team had prepared a little statement for him to read, and he got off track. I think he thought that he was riffing and maybe helping himself in response to the Corvette point. Maybe like, oh, this is – let me help myself by pointing out that the garage was locked. I don't think he really thought that through, Andy, very carefully. Well, no, but he's got a career of – saying things without thinking them through that stretches back uh, half a century. And that is true. You, you were good enough, Guy, to mention that uh, uh, my assessment of what he said in his defense, and that comes from his his own lawyer. So, you know, I, I, how much they're thinking this through, I don't know. What's the significance of that admission? Because it seems like, you know, he's trying to say literally within a sentence – of each other that he takes this stuff seriously we all understand how seriously he takes classified materials but he was also saying by the way it wasn't just sitting out on the street it was a locked garage which at least suggests that he knew it was there and is trying to make excuses for why it wasn't so bad that this material was there i really think guy that they don't have a defense to the um to the crime that's here, which is the uh, mishandling of classified information. I mean, when the lawyer comes out and says uh, the he's confident and the president is confident that by the end of the investigation, we're going to know that this was uh, these materials were inadvertently misplaced. That's virtually a, a, a guilty plea under the statute, which makes it a crime for someone in Biden's position to handle it, uh, handle the materials uh with gross negligence. So I have to think since they're not, you know, dumb guys, the lawyer who um, is representing him is a fine lawyer. I I think that, you know, in every case 
where a prosecutor has to decide whether to bring charges. One inquiry is, do we have sufficient evidence to prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt? But there's always a second inquiry, which is, is this, would an indictment here be in the public interest? And that brings to bear all these issues about, you know, mitigation and precedent and um, public interest that would cut against uh, an indictment of a sitting president of the United States, the uproar that would cause in the country, the disruption, et cetera. So I think they're they're planning their feet on the second question, not the first one. Mm-hmm. And look, I mean, you and I have already talked about it earlier in the week, in fact, that if they were tempted to pursue charges against Trump, I think that that was going to be potentially a huge political problem just because they didn't pursue charges against Hillary Clinton for doing something that, in my view, is much worse for reasons that I've explained. Now you add into it, into the mix, into the equation, what's happening with Biden, which continues to seemingly get worse by the day for him. I just think it becomes very difficult for them to justify, you know, going after or prosecuting Trump on this particular issue. That being said, I mean, you could easily make an argument that Hillary should have been prosecuted. I've made that argument myself multiple times, including in writing. And if she had been prosecuted, then I think you can make the case that Trump should be, and that even though it's highly irregular with a sitting president, maybe charges would be appropriate there, except I think the likelier out- outcome here is exactly the opposite, no charges on this against any of them, which might be in terms of the public interest and you know the political rules and precedents that have been set forth, that might be the right prudential judgment at this point. I do worry, as I was just saying with Shannon, what message does it send to everyone else which is if you get to a high enough level where partisans know who you are and care about who you are and there's like politics at stake, you can mishandle top secret material till the cows come home and you're not going to get charged with a crime. But if you're you know, some Navy low-level intelligence officer who makes a mistake, you're going to jail. I don't really think that that's in the public interest either. Well, it's not in the public interest um as a as a principle but at the same time guy i think we have to be realistic that there is there's such a disruption i mean in our system the power of the presidency is so awesome and as justice scalia explained in his famous uh, morrison versus olson dissent um all of the executive power is reposed in one official the president which makes that official the highest most consequential official in the country, that it is simply always going to be a fact of life that there's a lot more riding on prosecuting a president than prosecuting uh, other officials. So even though in a lot of ways it seems unfair, uh, we have a lot more invested in the president than we do, for example, on that you know low-level Navy official. True, although I mean, Hillary I have Clinton, a lot of sympathy for. Hillary Clinton famously was never president, um, and, and she got away with it too. So it just seems like You know, it's just if you get to a certain level of partisan politics, your point legally about the presidency makes sense. But obviously that type of thing went beyond it. She was running for president. Everyone who was very mad at Trump for Mar-a-Lago or many of them didn't care about what Hillary was doing. Now, they don't care really about what Biden was doing uh, and then vice versa in a lot of cases as well. It just feels like principle and even application of standards or law is a problem in our society right now. I don't think it gets fixed or solved because of this. It's just an observation that I'm making. Uh, Meanwhile, Andy, 
first of all, do you still agree that as now we're up to, what, three different locations, three different troves of classified materials, as it gets worse for Biden, it looks better, at least from a charging standpoint, that, that Trump won't get charged? Yeah, Guy, I'm not, I'm not in any different place than I was. I, I guess I'm more confirmed in it than I was when we talked about this earlier in the week. I, mm-hmm. The way I've always looked at this is that, you know, there's a lot of comparison now between, you know, the Trump facts and the Biden facts. And I think what people should really focus on is the Hillary Clinton context. Yes. You know, the fact that she got a pass has always meant that the Justice Department had a very small margin of error in terms of justifying a prosecution of Trump on some rationale that he's uniquely awful, that he should be prosecuted even though Biden, uh, even though Clinton was not. And I don't think they could have sustained. You know, they needed everything to go right. I don't think they could sustain some damaging facts. And I can't think of anything that would be more damaging for them than the fact that the sitting president of the United States is now uh, on the basis of very strong evidence suspected of committing the same crime that 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 uh, Trump is under investigation for. Yeah, now Hillary, the Hillary precedent and the Hillary example, given what she did, which to me was clearly illegal, uh, is uh, – the most important factor in this, and then you pile on the Biden stuff and you get to the conclusion that we're both in the same spot on. I just like total bullseye there, in my opinion. You have been saying, Andy, that you think the, what now, multiple special counsel probes have, I'm seeing a quote here from you, tremendous ramifications looking ahead to 2024 uh, and the election, I mean, it makes sense because you know, one of the special counsels looking into a former president who's running for his old job. The other special counsel now looking into the uh, current sitting president who is widely rumored to be very seriously running again. I mean, beyond that, do you think voters care about this stuff, especially if they sort of cancel out, if that makes sense? Yeah, well, I think they do, Guy, in in this sense. Um, I don't think it bodes well for either Trump or Biden. And I, I'm, uh, you know, I was very influenced, I think, by uh, an argument that our uh, mutual friend Kim Strassel makes in the Wall Street Journal, which is, you know, isn't it time that we learn the lessons of 2016? And I would extend that to like the lessons of 2020 as well, in the sense that we've had too many of these cycles now. And, and too many years running together where law enforcement was able to put its thumb on the scale of American presidential politics. And I yeah. think people have had it with that. I, well, I, they- I hope you're right. And I don't want to be too cynical. Sometimes it feels like we don't really learn lessons in this country these days. Uh, but perhaps a, cur- a corner will be turned. We'll find out. Annie McCarthy, our guest on The Guy Benson Show. Up on a break. Let's take it. Stay tuned. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome back. We've talked a few different times this week about some of the transportation problems that have been percolating and flaring up all across the country now for the better part of a year, maybe beyond. Looming rail strike that was narrowly averted. The ports out on the West Coast in particular and the backlogs that that caused with all sorts of strains on our supply chain to begin with. Travel nightmares over the summer, the meltdown of Southwest Airlines, the FAA glitch that appeared to be human error plus 
very old technology. This week, that affected me for a couple hours when I was traveling. We've been mentioning Pete Buttigieg, who's the Transportation Secretary, and some of the other controversies related to that stuff, not just his response to some of these things, but the trip that he took overseas on a vacation while the sort of sort of Damocles was dangling on the rail strike that would have been crippling to the U.S. economy. And the private jet flights, the excuses that they're using for that, I think missing certain context, ignoring the controversy that was almost exactly the same topic, ignoring the bad optics that drew a lot of criticism during the previous administration on the same front. Buttigieg has been sort of under some scrutiny. And he's very good at giving media interviews. He does that all the time. It seems like that's really the main part of his job, auditioning for his next presidential run or some other seeking of higher office. All over TV, podcasts, etc., he is very good at communicating and sounding like he knows what he's talking about. He's a smart person. He's honed a lot of communication skills. There's no question about that. But I think that there are, as I've said, some fair lines of actual criticism involving his job performance, his role in the federal government, the big disruptions in his portfolio, and the way that he has reacted or not to them. And then just his qualification for holding it in the first place. I'm not questioning his intelligence. I'm questioning whether or not he is good at the job. Now, a new press release has been put out on his behalf by a journalist, Alexi McCammond, at Axios. Listen to this tweet, story that she wrote. Buttigieg has in several cases been the victim of circumstances that predated his time in office such as the ancient computers and infrastructure that contributed to the FAA disaster, that hasn't stopped ours, Republicans, from relentlessly attacking him. That's just a press release. Like a nice little DNC rapid response, either from the party or maybe the White House, maybe the DOT, but this was furnished dutifully, very generously, from a journalist. It is true that sometimes politicians face challenges rooted in problems that are beyond their control or predate their time in office. It happens all the time. The question is, are you good at managing it, bouncing back and getting the job done? Not making a bunch of excuses. And I guess it's nice to be a Democrat. In the case of Pete Buttigieg, you don't even have to make the excuses yourself. You can wait for journalists to do that on your own behalf to protect the tribe, protect the precious. It's pretty amazing. Speaking of amazing, listen to this story out of Chicago. The NBC affiliate out there writing, Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot, under heavy scrutiny after her re-election campaign, sent an email to Chicago public school teachers asking them to offer students the opportunity to serve as externs, like sort of external interns, on her re-election campaign. Many of her opponents in the mayoral race blasted the email as unethical. Several suggested it may have violated both the city's ethics ordinance and election law in sending it. The email was sent to teachers offering students a chance to volunteer for the Lightfoot re-election campaign in exchange for course credit. According to multiple reports, Lightfoot's campaign has since rescinded the offer in the wake of withering criticisms. 
Chicago Public Schools says they will not coordinate with Lightfoot or any other campaign. I mean, you would hope not. My goodness. Lightfoot has now put out a statement. She's talked about this. She's saying, oh, yes, this was a mistake. She's blaming it on staff. Shouldn't have happened. Doesn't happen by accident. Some low-level person doesn't say, oh, I know. Let's send a campaign email to the teachers' union members, Chicago public school teachers, asking them to get their students involved on our campaign for extra credit, like course credit. That doesn't happen because one person decides to send out an errant email. Multiple people were involved in that decision, I guarantee you. And they decided, in their wisdom, that this was in some way appropriate or acceptable when it is very profoundly the opposite. It is hard to capture just how unacceptable and inappropriate this is. Hi, I'm your friendly Democrat mayor. I'm up for re-election. I need help. Hello, teachers of the teachers' union of my city. Please get the kids in your classrooms to come work for my campaign, and you can reward them with extra credit. That is just, like, cartoonishly corrupt. I don't know if that's a violation of the law. It's a violation of something. Leave it to Chicago. Chicago-style politics for someone, someones, to think this was a good idea. Like, to even have it floated in an internal meeting and get shot down and have that leak out, that would be pretty bad, actually, if it was taken seriously in the meeting. They actually did it. They think they were going to get caught, or a bunch of people would say, oh, yeah, great. All the teachers are like, yes, let's help Lightfoot get reelected, and let's get the kiddos involved. Like, pop quiz, kids, if you want a 100, go help this Democratic campaign. Oh, there's a mistake. It was a staffer. Oops. The leadership of that city. What a mess. The Guy Benson Show. Back after this. Stay tuned. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. As we continue on the Guy Benson Show on this Friday, thanks for listening. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast always free, including bonus Benson on the weekends. Something happened in the House of Representatives this week. Didn't get a ton of coverage, but it underscores something that I think animates my political thinking and my voting behavior. Those of you who listen to this show regularly know that I am not someone who is always just going to beat the drum for the Republicans because I lean conservative and they're the conservative party and therefore we just excuse or justify what they do. They drive me crazy too much of the time. They can be dysfunctional. They can be illiberal. Cult of personality stuff runs strong actually on both sides of the aisle. So I will call out the GOP when I feel like it's necessary, including the former president, which I know drives some of you crazy, but that's just how I am. Even when I am most frustrated with the Republicans or when they make me most queasy or they make me feel like, why am I still voting for this party? 
the Democrats do something to remind me why I can never, ever support Democrats in elections, at least as the Democratic Party is currently constituted, particularly on the issue of abortion, which is a tricky issue, controversial one, hot button, you pick the term. I understand that. I try in the course of talking and writing about this issue, as we have a lot over the last calendar year for obvious reasons, given what happened at the Supreme Court, I try to be respectful. I put my cards on the table. I'm pro-life. With some exceptions, I'm not an absolutist, but I'm definitely on the pro-life side of things. And I recognize that there are people who are pro-choice, who I probably agree with on some things, disagree with on others. I can understand where they're coming from, even as I seek to perhaps persuade people to inch a little bit in my direction. Then there's the distinction that I make between pro-choice, safe, legal, rare, certain limitations, and pro-abortion, this radicalism that unfortunately has gripped almost the entirety of the elected Democratic world at the federal level. Stomach-turning stuff. Really, really extreme. And the pro-abortion cult, frankly, was on full display this week in the House, reminding me once again why the Democratic Party cannot earn my support at this time, as long as this is where they are. They clearly don't want it if this is their posture. Let me explain what happened. We talked about their alleged bills to, quote-unquote, codify Roe versus Wade, which don't actually codify Roe versus Wade, and go so much further in such an extreme way that even lifelong pro-choice Republicans like Susan Collins said, no, that's crazy. We can't go there. She was a hard no on those efforts. The extremism got even worse this week, unfortunately. Like, this is a segment and a topic that makes me feel almost a little bit ill. It is genuinely distressing and upsetting to me. I wrote about it also this week at townhall.com. I'm not asking a bunch of these Democrats to come out and suddenly endorse, you know, heartbeat bills, six-week bans for most abortions, which have passed in a number of states. I would note that the Republican governors who signed those laws were all reelected, many by very large margins, which sort of complicates one of the narratives around this whole issue. What I have been asking is, is there a Democrat or more than two or three Democrats in all of Congress who are willing to endorse literally anything that falls short of limitless, taxpayer-funded abortion on demand for any reason whatsoever at any stage of pregnancy? The reason that I ask that is House Democrats voted en masse almost unanimously this week against two bills that were put up by the Republican majority. One of them was a Born Alive Infant Protection Act, which mandates, and it's just sort of mind-boggling that such legislation needs to exist, but it mandates that if a baby, no longer a fetus, no longer inside the mother, if a baby is born alive during the process of a late-term abortion that goes wrong and accidentally the child is not killed in utero and is alive and breathing 
outside the mother. That child must be treated as a human being and is entitled to legal rights and must be given medical attention to help preserve his or her life. Every single House Democrat except for two voted against that. Henry Cuellar voted for it from Texas. Another guy from Texas voted present. The rest of them, all of them, what, 210 or so, voted no. And they had all sorts of very bizarre reasons and justifications for voting no. Unfortunately, we know that this type of situation happens. In the case of that horrific serial killer, Kermit Gosnell, who was also an abortionist, there were whistleblowers who said there were babies born alive, and he would just sort of deny that they were alive. These whistleblowers could see the babies breathing, could hear them making little sounds, and he'd kill them anyway. I know this is really unpleasant to hear. It is also an extremely ugly reality. There was a whistleblower who used to work in an abortion clinic back in Illinois, Jill Stanick, who has been advocating for this type of law for a very long time, who personally witnessed babies born alive in her clinic who were just discarded to die alone in a closet. Like, it makes you want to cry. This bill was not even really an abortion bill. This bill was an anti-infanticide bill. Once the baby's out in the world, living on its own, you can't kill it, you can't let it die, you have to give it medical attention. He needs it. She needs it. She's entitled to it legally. That's the point of this bill, and almost every Democrat voted no because the bad anti-abortion people were for it, so they have to be against it. And the mentality, and this is just a very crass thing to say, but the mentality seems to be if a woman and her abortionist have decided that there needs to be an unborn child who is no longer alive, then that woman is entitled to a child who is no longer alive, even if it happens to be accidentally born first. It's sick. You would think that if a party was trying to make the argument that they are in favor of choice, especially in the early stages of pregnancy, and this is up to a woman and her doctor, and these are very difficult decisions, and this is not about infanticide or anything else, You would think they could say, of course, we will line up behind an anti-infanticide bill. But they didn't. They did exactly the opposite. I saw one argument, Jerry Nadler from New York, he was arguing against this on the floor, and he made the case, well, uh, it might actually endanger the child if you force medical professionals to perform certain medical acts, like this was all really being done in the best interests of the children born alive, that they wouldn't be accidentally harmed by the medical care. That is ludicrous. Who actually believes that? But these are the contortions that they're forced to undertake to kind of make it seem like their position is less utterly ghastly and grotesque and ghoulish than it actually is. But it actually is. Like the argument that requiring babies who survive abortions be taken to a hospital could put that baby in danger? No one believes that. But that was one of their arguments. There was another Democrat 
who's on the floor arguing passionately against this, who for some reason put an easel behind her with one of those big poster boards, and it was an image of a fully developed black baby in utero. That was the backdrop that she chose in the process of defending the so-called right to dismember that black baby at any point for any reason, apparently even slightly after birth. What an interesting choice that was in terms of visuals. Then there was another vote, right? So the advanticide bill passed, thank goodness, with all Republicans voting yes and one Democrat voting yes, the rest of them no, one guy present. Then there was another one, which was a resolution to condemn the spate, largely still unsolved, by the way, with very few indictments or arrests, of domestic terrorist attacks, violence, intimidation, criminal vandalism, firebombing, threats against pro-life pregnancy centers and clinics, and religious organizations and churches, by the way. You might remember that last year Nancy Pelosi was asked to condemn it. There had been a whole string of them. There was this left-wing, pro-abortion, radical group taking responsibility, saying they were going to keep going in the wake of the Dobbs decision. Pelosi, the super-Catholic former speaker, as she would say, as she would describe herself, She was asked just to condemn domestic terrorism and violence. She wouldn't do it. She wouldn't come close to it. She actually just doubled down on how important abortion is for her while underscoring her Catholicism. That was the way she responded to that question. And unfortunately, we learned this week she's not an outlier. She was actually speaking for her conference quite accurately, as it turns out, because this was a resolution on the floor of the House to condemn the threats and the violence and the domestic terrorism. Every Republican voted yes. It's a no-brainer. Three Democrats this time could bring themselves to join the Republicans and condemn terrorism. The rest of the Democrats voted no. And their excuse was, well, the resolution doesn't condemn other violence like violence against abortion providers. So if we're not condemning all sorts of multiple things, then we won't go along with it. Which, and it's like, why won't these pro-lifers, people who call themselves pro-life, why won't they condemn? Let me make it very simple. Do I condemn violence against abortion providers? Yes. Strongly, harshly, every day of the week. You can ask me every day for a year if I condemn this violence from my quote-unquote side of the issue and the answer will always be yes it's easy it's not hard now it's your turn they won't do it they won't do it i don't want to call them pro-terrorism but if you vote against an anti-terrorism resolution because you want more things mentioned it actually reminds me of what was it 2019 ilhan omar had spouted off one of her latest anti-Semitic rants. And she had done enough of these things that House Democrats were feeling uneasy about it and they were going to condemn anti-Semitism in a resolution. But because the left wing has a lot of anti-Semitism in their ideology, especially involving Israel, but just Jews generally, and unfortunately that also applies on the hard right as well, the left wingers in the Democratic Party in the base threw a fit, threw a tantrum, and they watered down the anti-Semitism condemnation resolution in the House. The Democrats did this. Pelosi had to do this to avoid embarrassment, and they made it an all-lives-matter 
an all-bigotry matters resolution. They couldn't just focus on the scourge of anti-Semitism, which had been amplified by one of their members. They had to say, oh, and we condemn everything else. Let's list them. And they added like 17 things in there, destroying the purpose of focusing on this one form of evil. Now they've done the same thing on abortion-related violence. And they lined up almost unanimously to vote against a condemnation of domestic terrorism. And these are the people who talk about threats to democracy and all of that. It's very hard to take them seriously. This is disgusting. It's absolutely horrifying. Not an uplifting, fun topic, I realize, especially on a Friday. But this has been bothering me for the last couple of days, and I wanted to use my platform to address it. I have a few more thoughts, which we'll get to, including a wild argument that was made on the House floor. I'll respond to that right when we come back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. It's the Guy Benson Show. We are back. I had a few more unexpressed thoughts on this that I wanted to get to as I wrap things up on this topic, as promised. There was a Democrat from Michigan, Hillary Scholten, who got up and gave her speech before voting against condemning terrorism and against banning infanticide in this specific way. She voted against both of those things, calling herself a pro-choice Christian. She quoted scripture, if you can believe it. Jeremiah, I knew you before I formed you and placed you in your mother's womb. She said, it doesn't say the government's womb. What a very strange decision to quote the Bible and the Bible's establishment of an unborn child as a human known to God as a justification to vote in the most radical way in favor of abortion up to birth and beyond, and to refuse to condemn acts of violence and intimidation against people who believe the opposite, who have a different vantage point. She voted that way, and she used the Bible to justify it. No one's arguing that it's the government's womb. The argument is, if there is a living human entitled to rights, obviously the government has a role in safeguarding those rights, right? The government places laws on people's bodies to protect other people's bodies all the time, which is why rape, for example, is illegal. You can't just rape someone because your body wants to because there's a victim who doesn't want that. You can't murder someone because your body wants to murder someone because there's someone else involved in the equation. If you're pro-life, you believe there's someone else involved in the equation. We can disagree on when that starts, when that life is established, when that life is worthy of protection. But it's not the government's womb. It's just like a complete talking past the issue. It's a complete misunderstanding or a deliberate misunderstanding, I would argue, to try to muddy the waters and to try to come up with something that can justify the immoral, unethical, anti-science, I would say, truly appalling votes that were cast by nearly every single Democrat in the House this week. It is tribal. It's like this pro-abortion psychosis. I say that as someone who has respect for people who disagree with me, uh, you know, pro-life, pro-choice. I understand. This goes way beyond that. 
I watch in disbelief as these arguments are made. And I know I'm a dude talking about this. Some people say, oh, well, keep your men opinions. Stop mansplaining this stuff. I'm also speaking on behalf of most American women. The polls show the vast majority, substantial majority of American women do not support this level of radicalism that the Democrats do. They don't agree with the Republicans on everything either on the issue, but they're not in favor of this, not even close. But that is where, what, 98% of elected Democrats in Washington land now. And if that's the case, they are forfeiting any possibility of earning my vote ever. No matter how horrible the Republicans get on this stuff alone. I just can't. It is a red line. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show coming up next. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's the happy hour on this Friday. Happy Friday, one and all, here on The Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Thank you so much for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com, our website. The podcast is free every day on demand. Bonus Benson on the weekends. You can follow us on social media, at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. Also follow me personally on those two platforms, at Guy P. Benson. This hour is sponsored by our friends at The Finish Long Drink. We've ordered our next batch of the long drink. It is delicious, so refreshing year-round, and really taking America by storm. The most popular alcoholic beverage in Finland is here, and people love it, myself especially included. TheLongDrink.com, their website. You can see where they're sold near you, rapidly expanding. You can also order online, TheLongDrink.com. But always drink responsibly, 21-plus only. Joining me now is Pete Ricketts, who served as Nebraska's 40th governor and has now been selected by the current governor to be the next U.S. senator from that state following the departure of Senator Ben Sass, who has moved on to become the president of the University of Florida. So Senator-designate Ricketts is with us, and it is great to have you here, sir. Great. Thank you very much for having me on. So I just want to start by talking about your predecessor, In this role, in this office, Senator Sass, as I mentioned, he's headed down to lead Gatorland. He's been on this program multiple times. He and I had a lot of very interesting, thought-provoking conversations. He's very smart, very thoughtful guy. Uh, He and I traded some barbs back and forth about Big Ten football. Really enjoyed having him on the program. Hopefully we'll have him back in his new role. I just wonder, as you step into that seat, what do you think is Senator Sass's legacy, and how would you describe his service to your state and to the country? Well, I appreciate Senator Sass's service to our state and to our country. He has been a great voice of conservatism. If you look at his voting record, he's one of the most conservative voting rec- uh, one of the most conservative voting senators we had while he was there. His legacy will be what he has done. I think, for the most part, or the biggest part, uh, on the judiciary. 
and helping to get constitutionally minded, you know, people who understand the Constitution is what it says, you know, those conservative jurists on the federal bench and specifically uh, getting conservatives into the Supreme Court, which has had a huge impact on our country. So I think uh, Senator Sass is done a tremendous job of representing our conservative values and for getting conservative judges on the bench. And I, I certainly wish him well, and I agree with you 100%. I, I know Ben. He's a ton of fun to go have a beer with because he's so smart. And uh, it's great to have a voice of conservatism at the University of Florida. We need more voices of conservatives at in higher education. Yeah, totally agree on that point. And I know that there were some loud screamers who were angry that he was going down there and they couldn't handle the fact that he's a conservative uh, my guess is he will probably be winning some hearts and minds, and I wish him the very best down in Florida. Now, in your state, in Nebraska, you served two terms as governor, 2015 until just this month. Tell our audience about your sort of philosophy and your approach to being governor as a conservative in that state. How did you approach the job? Yeah, I think that, you know, if you think about the, the big picture of what do Republicans and Democrats disagree on, it's the size and scope of government. But we actually agree there's things that government should do, and when we do those things, we should do very, very well. So I brought a business-like approach to running state government to make it run more effectively, more efficiently, more customer service. And we've improved services by being able to do that. I implemented our Center of Operational Excellence to drive that part of it, but it also allowed us to save our time for our teammates. And uh, we, through our 900 projects, uh, about $100 million in hard savings because we were running our operations, our operations more effectively. And so that's one of the key things we've done. And because we kept our costs down, I uh, limited the growth of the budget to about 2.8% a year while our revenues were growing much faster. We were able to deliver record tax relief. And uh, by 2027, it'll be $12.7 billion in tax relief. So that's significant. We did a better job of providing services and brought that tax relief. And then, of course, we continue to advocate for the free enterprise system, focusing on defending our conservative values, all those sort of things in my time as governor as well. It's a very different thing being a U.S. senator versus being a governor. And I know that you sought the Senate job in the past. I think it was 2006. It was actually really interesting. I saw someone posting the map of Nebraska in that election. Ben Nelson at the time, moderate Democrat, uh, won handily. And it's sort of these days. And to me, 06 doesn't feel that long ago. It kind of was, though. And in terms of a political lifetime, it's like the distant past. Ben Nelson then voted for Obamacare, and that was the end of him. He got voted out at the first opportunity by the people of Nebraska. But just seeing those maps of what could happen in a statewide election in your state not that long ago, back when I was uh, sort of finishing up college, versus the environment today, that was kind of striking. I wonder if you have a reflection on that. Well, I think one of the things that reflects is how far left the Democrat Party has gone. You know, Nebraskans tend to be very humble people. They want to see good government. And they vote for the person, not necessarily the party. But the party of the Democrats right now is so far in the socialist leftist camp right now, you can't find uh, people that you want to support here in Nebraska. I mean, you know, Nebraska is primarily a pro-life state, and you can't find a pro-life Democrat anymore because they've driven them all out of the party. Yeah, we just talked about that. So I think that one of the things that reflects is that uh, the Democrats have really 
gone so far left and Republicans have stepped in, demonstrated we can do a great job of running government, improve the level of services, that we're going to stand for traditional values and all that. And so you see us being rewarded with the votes of uh, you know, our voters here in Nebraska, and in fact, you know, if you look at all of our constitutional offices, our entire federal delegation, they're all Republican. Yeah, I mean, I'm just looking back to 2006. You won 36 percent of the vote in that election, and Ben Nelson cruised to re-election. Then he cast some votes. That was the end of that. And here we are these years later, and you're a two-term governor winning handily in that state, and now you're going to be a U.S. senator. It's just interesting how things change, and I absolutely agree that in the case of Nebraska, the dynamic that changed is the National Democratic Party and what they stand for, and that's how you can get things to move that dramatically, that drastically in the span of just a handful of years. As you come to Washington, as you prepare to become a U.S. senator, what sort of the mentality shift that you're going to have to undergo, at least in your own mind, as you talk to members of the Senate, former members of the Senate, going from a chief executive role where you really can call a lot of the shots versus now, you know, this deliberative body, one out of 100, seems like the job description is quite different. What's that transition going to be like for you? It absolutely is, and that's the way the founders designed it. Our founders had seen some of the previous problems and other democracies, and they, they wanted a republic to be able to make sure that we didn't have some of the whipsawing that you can see if you have, for example, just a direct vote of the people. And so the Senate is supposed to be a deliberative body. It's supposed to slow things down so that we can be more thoughtful. And that is a, a mind shift, as you point out, from being a chief executive. But it's an important one for our country, and I'm excited to be able to join that uh, um, group to be able to work through the issues we have in our country, like how do we make sure we have a strong economy and how do we make sure we hold Washington accountable for the delivering good services but getting rid of the waste and the fraud and abuse and how do we have a strong national economy, for example, to stand up to the Chinese Communist Party. You know, those are the sorts of big picture issues that we're going to have to take on, but they're also the sorts of things that we need to be very thoughtful about how we approach it and how we're putting in long-term plans in place for the good of the country. So it is a little bit different, quite a bit different from being governor, yeah. but I'm excited about the opportunity. So we're in 2023. Senator Sass had just been reelected two years ago. He was on the ballot. I believe he received the most votes in the history of the state in 2020. And so he would be up again in 2026, but you would have to run in 2024 just to maintain that seat for two more years and then run again in 2026. Are you prepared to do both of those things, 24 and 26? Is that on your radar? Yeah, absolutely. It's one of the things that um, when we went through the process with Governor Pillen, who's my successor, he interviewed nine candidates. And in the interview with me, one of the things he wanted to make sure is that I was committed to not only running in 24, but again in 26. And I told him, absolutely, that is my intention. We're going to win in 24 and then run again in 26 so that we can serve the people of Nebraska. And as you know, seniority matters in the Senate. So it's important to have that kind of continuity. Have you gotten any advice that you're able to share from Senator Sass or from Senator Fisher or anyone in the Senate who's reached out to you as you get ready to make this plunge? Actually, I've talked to a number of folks, uh, Senator Fisher, Senator Sass, Senator McConnell, and the, a, a lot of the advice is, you know, 
finding things that you want to pursue. They're going to be helpful to Nebraska, but also having patience that, again, as you pointed out earlier, this is a, del- a deliberative body that you need to take time to learn the institution, learn how things work, and don't be in a rush to um, you know, try and hit the ground running on it over learning how the body works and how to be able to have an impact. So uh, having patience was one of the things that uh, people were uh, coaching me on. <laughs> and then I'm, I'm excited to be able to get to know my colleagues because that'll be another aspect is you got to get to know the people in the body. Yeah, I think having patience is probably a good thing in general if you're coming to Washington. A lot of patience is needed given what happens in this city so often. I did see there was a very warm welcome statement of support from Senator McConnell that you just mentioned uh, once your appointment had been announced. Is there something specifically that you think might be your pet project, something that you are most concerned about that you want to devote a lot of your energy and time as a U.S. senator to addressing, if you had to say one thing? Well, I'm going to give you two just because I think there's a domestic and there's a foreign policy one. On the domestic side, you know, in Nebraska, we've been very successful in running government much more effectively. Washington needs to do that, too. We can't have this expectation that big government in D.C. is going to fail. It doesn't have to be that way. We've demonstrated here in Nebraska that government can work. It needs We need to hold Washington, D.C. accountable for making government work, for again, cutting the waste, the fraud, the abuse, all the things that frustrate people, the bad customer service we get from the federal government. You know, that can all be changed. This can all be done. The second thing is we got to have a strong national government and strong national defense, and everybody knows that. The, the, the biggest existential threat to this country is the Chinese Communist Party. We've got to push back against them. Um, Xi Jinping has said he wants to be the world-dominating party by tw- or power by 2049. We should take him seriously at that. And, you know, for example, here in Nebraska – I actually moved our trade office from Shanghai to Germany because I felt that China was a bad trading partner. Uh, We banned – I was the first governor to ban TikTok on on state government devices back in 2020 because we wanted to protect our privacy and our information. Uh, We need to take steps to push back against the Chinese Communist Party and their agenda. We can see it. With the Uyghurs in Western China, we can see it. With Hong Kong, we can see it now with the noise they're making about Taiwan. It's important that we push back against this worldview that is diametrically opposed to our view of freedom and all that that stands for, not only for our own country, but for people around the world. Pete Ricketts, last question. I started my career in Chicago. I actually went to school in Chicago. I think you did too. I was up north. You were down south. If I'm not mistaken, your family is very well known to sports fans in the Windy City, pertaining to a certain baseball club on the north side of the city. And I'm just curious if you have any thoughts on the offseason that is underway right now. Just gargantuan sums of money flying around, a lot of action. It has been quite something to witness as a fan myself. And I just wonder if you have any thoughts on that. Well, as you point out, our family owns the Chicago Cubs. And I used to sit on the board of directors uh, of the Chicago Cubs and, and got off after um, serving, or, you know, after I got elected as governor. So I'm not involved in the day-to-day as much. But I will tell you one of the concerning things I have is how much teams are putting into it because, you know, one of the, again, just like with the state of government, we always took running the Cubs as it had to run like a business. Many owners uh, – 
uh, will have to put money in on capital calls every year because their revenues are not exceeding their expenses. And I think that's a long-term problem for the league and for baseball in general. It's got to be a financially sustainable model. And uh, I am concerned about the level of spending because if the revenues don't keep up with it, uh, it just makes it problematic for long-term sustainability. Former Nebraska governor and incoming U.S. Senator Pete Ricketts, our guest here on The Guy Benson Show. And when you are officially senator, let's have you back and maybe you get your bearings, see how things are going for a couple weeks or months. We would love to chat again once you're here. Senator-designate Pete Ricketts, thank you so much for your time and, and good luck in the new position. Well, thank you very much, Guy, and I'd love to come back on. Sounds great. It's The Guy Benson Show. It's the happy hour. We'll take a quick break and we'll come right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. It's the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. We've got some clips of Vice President Kamala Harris. This week she was in Ann Arbor, Michigan at the University of Michigan. On stage with a professor there and the Secretary of Energy, Jennifer Granholm. And honestly, when I saw some of these clips, I assumed she was talking to school children not college students. For example, she had this to say in describing some basic geography. Listen. I convened, and I've convened now at least three times, uh, a group that has is their acronym, CARICOM. It is the Caribbean nations, island nations. In the Western Hemisphere, that is where the Caribbean is, we are also in the Western Hemisphere. They are our neighbors. Oh, thank you, Madam Vice President. She's talking to seven-year-olds. Island nations. The Caribbean is in the Western Hemisphere. So are we. They're our neighbors. Okay. So she decided, obviously, to play the hits. She's got a few big jokes, some real knee slappers, like Venn diagrams. Here we go again. Cut 29. Through the lens of something I love, which is to always think about complex issues through... The- the, the frame of a Venn diagram. I love Venn diagrams. I love. <laughs> I do. I love Venn diagrams. So see what I'm saying. So, the, she is nerdy. I'm just saying. <laughs> so the three circles, and you can do more. Nobody says a Venn diagram has to only be three circles, right? Well, it can be two, actually. Nerdy is one word, I guess. I'm not sure that's the one I would use. Got the big laugh at the hilarity of just the mere mention of Venn diagrams. I mean, if you're not doubled over with laughter, what is wrong with you? And then, of course, her very favorite topic, school buses. Got 30. You know what also excites me? What I'm, I, among the many things, I'm excited about electric school buses. I love electric school buses. I just love them for so many reasons. Maybe because I went to school on a school bus. Raise your hand if you went to school on a school bus, right? These are adults. She's talking to adults. Just the inflection of her voice. I'm just so excited. Uh, I wonder if they all in that auditorium got together and Sang a song. Enjoy, boys and girls. That's your vice president of the United States. The happy hour back after this. 
You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Earlier today, we caught up with our friend and colleague, Shannon Bream, anchor of Fox News Sunday. Check your local listings on Sunday morning. The show replays on the news channel later in the day. I'll actually be joining the panel this weekend with Shannon Bream. Here's part of our wide-ranging conversation in advance of her weekend program. We had the speaker battle last week, and now all this stuff... With President Biden, the classified materials, the blizzard of, I would say, hackery and double standards and people trying to make excuses, we now have a second special counsel. We have a special counsel looking into this on Trump. Now we have a special counsel looking into this same type of thing with Biden. It's almost hard to keep track of the various investigations. There's still the John Durham thing floating out there. There's the Hunter Biden probe out there. There's other investigations into Donald Trump. It's just like a very tangled web that even when it's like our job to remember what's happening, it kind of gets challenging at times. Right. I need like the beautiful mind situation where you've got the (laughs) strings going here and the thumbtacks there and the stuff all on the wall just to keep track. Like you said, of all these, there are state investigations, there are federal investigations. There's a lot to keep track of. And listen, we're already in formally into 2024. Um, Former President Trump has announced he's officially in. The buzz had been here in Washington that President Trump was getting ready to announce in the next few weeks that he's in. So we're we're fully into that. And the DOJ has always had this practice of trying not to influence elections by anything they do. So the clock is now ticking on both of these. Um, Does one finish first and the other finish second? Does one person get charged and the other get charged? I mean, there's so much uh, now on the weight of the Attorney General Merrick Garland on the DOJ as people are going to be watching about how these cases, which have similarities and, listen, to be fair, significant differences, but how they're handled is going to be very closely watched because these two men um, are likely both to be in officially soon and running for the presidency in the midst of these investigations. That's right. And look, I keep beating this drum to anyone who will listen. I think the Trump versus Biden side-by-side is somewhat interesting and relevant in terms of figuring out what might come or not come of this. I think the more relevant one is Hillary Clinton and the decision not to prosecute when Mm -hmm. she was just dead to rights for something that I've argued was much worse. So I just don't see how you can decide to let her off the hook, at least in that way, and then – filed charges against Trump or Biden, frankly, given what happened or didn't happen to Hillary. But also, like, at some point, maybe these people at the very top of our political system aren't the best examples to make, except, you know, what's the point of having rules if it becomes effectively clear that you can break them if you're just high enough up in the government? I mean, that's sort of Part of what worries me here, I'm not saying that there should be charges as a result now uh, against one of these two men, um, you know, even though it didn't happen with Hillary. It just overall, I just don't think it's a healthy thing. The law and the rules need to matter. They need to apply to everyone. And if they don't, what's the point of having them? And they've already sort of indicated they don't really apply to Hillary. And so why should they apply to Trump? I mean, I, I don't like framing it that way, but I think there's something there. Well, you think about, you know, folks are reminding us of other similar cases that have gone on. A civilian Pentagon employee last year who took classified documents to her hotel room got sentenced to jail over that. Um, We know the story of the guy on the submarine who took pictures to share with his family and got in trouble. I mean, they're 
if real people, quote unquote, real people who aren't running for president or at the level of living in the White House are having real jail time over well, these the um, potential documents, you know, people can argue about whether that's an over prosecution or not. But if we know that people at an, uh, a higher level, um, a, a more elite, a more protected level are not getting in trouble for the same things, no American wants to see that regardless of their party. It's not no, a partisan issue. You want to know that you would not get thrown in jail for something that the White House would get a pass on. Well, it's like if you're a little person, right? If you're a little person who's not that important and doesn't have you know a whole bunch of uh, political strings attached with partisan implications if you get in trouble, they're going to throw the book at you in order to really underscore and highlight the point how seriously we have to take these things. My full interview with Fox News Sunday host Shannon Bream, available at GuyBensonShow.com. Also, our free podcast, the whole show every day on demand, free, no charge to you. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your free podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch. Producer Christine has a little gathering that she's planning for, and she's asked Wyatt for some help. Well, we'll see how that goes. We'll talk about it next. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Homestretch on this Friday. Happy Friday. Thank you for being here. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast free. Bonus Benson on the weekends. Catch me on Fox News Sunday. Sunday morning with Shannon Bream. I'm on the panel with the whole team. Five of us around the table looking forward to that. Well, Mama Mia, Christine is hosting a brunch on Sunday. It's not clear how many guests are coming. I think Judgey Joyce is involved. Christine, what is this? Is this an extension of Judgey Joyce's birthday celebration or is this something separate? This is something totally separate. This is uh, a lot of family from New York don't get to come out often. So I'm having, you know, the cousins, some aunts, some uncles. Oh, are these the Long Island people that yeah. always make you come to Long Island? Yes. They're finally coming to Jersey? Yes. So okay. they're finally coming to see the place, meet Rosie. They've never met Rosie. Wow. So they really don't come to see you. Mm-mm. No. <laughs> right. I don't know if you know this, but a lot of, and I'm not saying this in a negative way, but a lot of people that live on Long Island do not like to leave Long Island. Well, it's a giant pain to leave Long Island. I call it the world's largest fire hazard. Like, there's one way on, one way off. It's a nightmare to drive. I guess, you know, you could go by boat and ferry and that sort of thing. But I've been to Long Island any number of times. There are some very nice places, some very nice people. But it is not exactly easy. And trying to exit via the city to go anywhere else, often a nightmare. Even when you would imagine the traffic wouldn't be bad, it's bad. So... I can sort of understand that, but it's not like it's a piece of cake for you guys to travel from Jersey to Long Island and back either. So it feels like reciprocity demands that they come see you at some point. I guess it's happening on Sunday, so you want to make the best of it. It's a brunch. So what is that going to entail? Because you have said, I believe, in the past that you're not exactly a cook. You said Bobby's sort of the cook of the household. What do you have in store for these relatives? Well, so this is the thing. Usually Bobby does all, you know, meals, especially when we have company. But I'm taking over. I'm doing the brunch because I feel like a brunch is something that I can handle. Mm. So I'm starting with a nice French toast casserole that I do the night before. And then you let it soak. And then you just throw it into the oven on Sunday. 
I'm going to do eggs, bacon, By the way, sausage. can I just say, and this is, this is not a reflection. I'm sure there are people all over America listening to the show right now who say French toast casserole sounds like a gift from God above. But you know my position mm. on French toast, waffles, pancakes. I'm a strong no. I really dislike that entire realm of food. What? I call it, I believe, hot, wet sugar bread is how I describe it. And I have no interest. Like, I find it repulsive. That's insane. Even if I didn't hate it, it would still be not worth the carbs and calories. But I actually detest it, so it's easy to miss out on those carbs and calories. No thank you. But you're moving on to eggs. I'm much more interested in eggs, so please go on. Well, the eggs were not the star of the show, and now you're making me worried. Because the eggs, I was just going to, you know, throw a whole bunch of eggs in a pan and, like, Twirl it around. Yeah, I guess. Scramble. Scramble. Sorry. Twirl them around? <laughs> Wait, can we stop? Can I? Is that what you just called? <laughs> can we Scrambled eggs? We're not fixing anything. Can we we're please putting, fix that? We're putting <laughs> eggs in a pan and twirling them around. Oh, boy. This is going to go well. So now you're making me worried because I – these scrambled eggs mm. – Good. That's well what done. I was going to do with them. Scramble them. Scramble. Yeah, always. Yep. That was um, – not going to be the star of the show. The French toast casserole is the star of the show. No, I think most people would want that and like that. I just, I acknowledge I'm weird in the fact that I don't like that stuff, but I personally don't. Maybe the Long Island relatives, like most people I would imagine, do. Well, I mean, they always love a good, you know, gravy and macaroni. It is Sunday, but since it's a brunch, we're not going to do that. Um, Then I'm going to do, you know, bacon and... Uh, sausage and a fruit salad, but my mom loves, you know, a good coffee and cake. Like that's her, her jam, might you say? Hmm. So I was like thinking, a coffee cake, right? But like, you know, like she loves, like you know, when you have like a dessert, like she likes a piece of cake and a cup of coffee. Yeah, like a baked good along with a coffee. Maybe some dunking can happen. That is a common thing that many people like. Not for me, but. Go on. And I know I could just, you know, go support our local bakery, which needs the support. But I've decided that I'm I want to do everything. So I'm going to make a cake Mm. and I have enlisted Quiet Wyatt to help me because not only does he make balloon animals, not only does he read the Wall Street Journal from front to back, not only does he travel the world, Wyatt bakes very very well he's a baker now are you having him come in to physically help you bake in new jersey or are you just getting some tips from him perhaps a recipe Well, i'm gonna get a recipe and then i just asked him earlier to please be around sunday morning to what what dan is that a lot to ask of a coworker? i feel like maybe there's some boundaries here that need to be respected boundaries we have boundaries well four of us one clear boundary is this is yet another gathering at your house to which I'm not invited, like I, every I, gathering that's ever happened at your house. Never been invited. Okay. Not that I would come to this because I have Fox News Sunday. That's the only reason, uh, plus you know the offerings, plus the person who's cooking. All that being said, though, what have you asked Wyatt in terms of help, and has he provided said help? So he, we decided well, – I thought it was a coffee cake. Wyatt, you said we've decided on a crumb cake? Yeah, I mean that's what I call it. There's different ways you could make it with like a crumb. There's like a crumb bun or just more of like a, a bun and then they put the crumbs on top or there's crumb cake where it's like literally cake and crumbs. And then people do different iterations of it. But 
what I call it and what I like is just a good crumb cake with a lot of crumbs. And are the crumbs made out of sugar? Is that right? Sugar, cinnamon, and a lot, a lot of butter. Okay. And this is something also that falls into the category of stuff I'm totally uninterested in. So I'm, I think, generally picturing what you're talking about. But if someone's like, hey, would you like a big, healthy slice of this delicious crumb cake? I would say, no, thank you. I'll go over to a diner and get a nice omelet and some home fries if I'm feeling like breakfast. But this sounds promising, except, Wyatt, are you concerned about conveying accurately information that can then be properly synthesized and put into action by producer Christine? Like, maybe she should go down to the local bakery and get a crumb cake as a backup, just in case there's a Sunday morning disaster, which is not, I would say, totally out of the question here. So I appreciate Christine's farm-to-table idea of making (laughs) everything for this event. Um, I will say in my past life at Wyatt's Bakery, I used to actually ship my world-famous crumb cake literally all around the country. So with a 24-hour notice, Christine, you can place an order of Wyatt's Famous Crumb Cake at wyattsbakery.com. Wait, is that still a thing? Not a thing, but it used to be. Wait, can I do it now? I mean, I have more than 24 hours till Sunday. I, I think I think you should give it a try. Give it a good college try, and I'll be there via text message, via phone. FaceTime. By the way, I just tried whyitsbakery.com, and it's it's a dead link, which is disappointing. I was hoping to discover something like an elaborate bakery business that Wyatt's actually been running as a side hustle, but maybe one day. Sorry, I, I interrupted here. What were you saying? So I'll have my phone on. Via text message, phone, and possibly even FaceTime if you need. Wow. So you are absolutely just obliterating any concept of boundaries. You're like, yes, please bother me on a Sunday morning. Well, we're that best is... friends. I mean, that's what you do. You're there for each other. Are you going to have a backup from a store, Christine? No. I think it's a good nope. idea. Mm-mm. A little safety net? Nope. Nothing. What happens if the whole thing goes down in flames? I don't. They're never coming to New Jersey again. You realize that, right? <laughs> if, if you don't wow them, they're in Long Island for the rest of their lives. I don't. I don't think it's going to go down in flames. I. Well, now you're making me nervous. I felt pretty confident before I started talking to yeah, you about this. Yeah, but you this. often have misplaced confidence. What? What is that supposed to mean? It means exactly what it sounds like. I just think it's important to have the occasional, like, realistic reality check to make sure that your contingency planning for the well-being of yourself, your mental health, and the enjoyment of your guests. See, I'm just being a friend, if you uh, think about it. Well, I have, a, I have another friend question. Okay. Uh, do I serve mimosas this that Sunday? Was my next question. Is there booze at this? I don't and know. My, I haven't my had... assumption was yes. I'm still doing dry January, so I haven't... No, you're not. You've already blown it. You've but... already done it, so it's over. No, no, no. But I, that, besides those two drinks we talked about, I have not... What, <laughs> Dan? <laughs> I have not had another... I haven't had another drink since, so we're back on the hooch. I mean, we're back off the hooch. Back off the hooch. But it's also been weekdays since your last drinks, right? You had drinks over the weekend. Here's another weekend coming. Right. I think the drinks are resuming this weekend. Right, which is considered a damp January. Damp January, which is what you're doing. Yes. I've decided that's what I'm doing. Yeah. So if you're doing a damp January, then you can serve mimosas. I will say I'm also doing damp January. The difference is you and I – announced different things. I was always going to do Damp January. 
you claim to do dry January and failed seven days in. This has been my plan all along. However, I will confess, my plan was to basically drink weekends only Friday and or Saturday, but probably just one or the other for the most part. I had a dilemma last night. Our neighbors threw a party on a Thursday, I know, but the whole neighborhood was invited. They're kind of new to town. This was their first time they've entertained at their home for neighbors. And so we went over there, and they had some nice finger foods, and they had really good booze. They had some very nice wine, but it was a Thursday. It wasn't really in alignment with my rules that I was setting out for myself for the uh, for the month of January. So I wasn't sure what I was going to do. Was I going to have a few drinks? So I actually talked about this with Brett Baer. <laughs> I was on the special report panel last night. He and I ended up in the elevator together afterwards. He was heading down to his car. I was heading home. And somehow this came up. And I think it's okay for me to tell. I can tell this, right? Of course you can. Come yeah. on. So we'll we'll Brett, keep your secrets. Yeah, Brett. This is yeah, big, big secret on national radio. Brett enjoys a cocktail from time to time. In fact, we've talked about it on the air. His seasonal cocktails, the man likes to drink, so, so do we here. So I asked him about this, and he said, oh, well, I'm definitely not doing dry January. And I sort of made reference to the quasi-dry January, and he said that he would probably describe his January as drenched, <laughs> which I think is great. <laughs> Christine, you should commit next year to drenched January. I feel like that's something that you could actually uh, it deliver was a, on. It was a drenched December. <laughs> yeah, that's sometimes the problem. So I felt like him saying that gave me a little permission slip. So I did have two drinks at the party last night on a Thursday. So I think in order to make up for that, I probably won't have a drink on Saturday. Interesting. Well, you got to give yourself a little grace. I just know I forgive you. Well, I will sleep well tonight in that case, although I will be very concerned for your guests for this brunch on Sunday, especially if there's no backup plan. It's like cookie or bust. Hopefully it goes well. You'll have Wyatt available by FaceTime. Please do not call me because I'll be on Fox News Sunday on set. That would be very embarrassing. Like, oh, this is my radio producer. She probably has an issue with her crumb cake. I just can't do that. Even lovely Shannon Bream might frown upon such things. So good luck. Godspeed. Hope it goes well. Maybe we can get an update on Monday when we're back here together on the radio. In the meantime, have a wonderful weekend, everyone. Dry, damp, drenched, whatever you want to do. Always drink responsibly. TheLongDrink.com. Back here Monday. Have a great night. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, in these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.